0: Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 10 of the Second Age of the Crusaders and the title is Frederick and the Recovery of Jerusalem. Now we've reached what I think is easily the most bizarre part of the Crusades for two reasons. The first is that the narrative is now dominated by the German Emperor Frederick II who was one of the most unusual medieval monarchs and second, Jerusalem was recovered by Frederick But, as you will hear, it wasn't really a proper crusade that achieved this, although technically historians do refer to it as the Sixth Crusade, and it didn't last for long or mean very much. So, who was Frederick? Well, he was born in Italy in 1194, heir to the Hohenstaufen dynasty in Germany and grandson of the great German Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. He was also the heir to the Norman kingdom of Sicily. He took control of Sicily and went on to defeat his rivals to become king of Germany and then in 1220, aged 25, he was crowned emperor in Rome by Pope Honorius III. Now, Frederick was no ordinary medieval monarch. He astonished his contemporaries by setting up his court at Palermo in Sicily, where he kept a harem guarded by black eunuchs. He had dancing girls, an Arab chef and a menagerie of animals, including elephants, lions and camels. So he might sound a little bit like a decadent Roman emperor, but in fact, he was also extremely intelligent and capable. He spoke six languages, including Arab and was fascinated by philosophy, poetry, mathematics, astrology and science and encouraged free thinking in all of these areas. He also established a very efficient government in Sicily. But most amazingly of all for the Middle Ages, he was a religious sceptic and described Moses, Christ and Muhammad as a trio of deluded charlatans and demanded that the church give up its material wealth. Not surprisingly, as you'll hear... This didn't exactly go down well with the medieval papacy, who excommunicated him three times. So, all in all, he was a pretty extraordinary guy who fascinated his contemporaries as well as historians who see him as the first example of an enlightened European monarch and a forerunner for the Renaissance. Now, when it comes to the Crusades, as you heard in the last episode, he failed to show up for the Fifth Crusade, but then decided that he would claim the kingdom of Jerusalem for himself. So, without further ado, let's hear the bizarre story of how Frederick recovered Jerusalem. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In the year 1225, the German Emperor Frederick was in his 31st year. He was a handsome man, not tall, but well-built, though already inclined to fatness. His hair, the red hair of the Hohenstaufen, was receding slightly. His features were regular, with a full, rather sensual mouth and an expression that seemed kindly. His intellectual brilliance was obvious. He was fluent in six languages, French, German, Italian, Latin, Greek and Arabic. He was well-versed in philosophy and in the sciences, in medicine and natural history, and well-informed about other countries. His conversation, when he chose, was fascinating, but for all his brilliance, he was not likeable. He was cruel, selfish, and sly, unreliable as a friend and unforgiving as an enemy. His sexual promiscuity, even keeping a harem in Palermo, shocked even the easy standards of Outremer. He loved to outrage contemporaries by scandalous comments on religion and morals. In fact, he was not irreligious, but his Christianity was of an intellectual variety. He considered himself to be God's anointed viceroy on earth. He knew himself to be a competent student of theology, but he was not going to submit to the dictation of any bishop were it even the Bishop of Rome. He saw no harm in taking an interest in other religions, especially especially Islam, with which he had been in touch all his life. He would not consider the Byzantines to be schismatic because they rejected the authority of the Pope, yet no ruler persecuted more savagely such Christian heretics as the Cathars and their kin. To the average Westerner, he was almost incomprehensible. Though he was by blood, half German, half Norman, he was essentially a Sicilian by upbringing, the child of an island that was half Greek and half Arab. As a ruler in Constantinople or in Cairo, he would have been eminent but not eccentric. But as King of Germany and the Western Emperor, he was a terrifying novelty. He treated his new Empress Yolanda cruelly. The day after their wedding, she found him seducing one of her cousins. When she protested, he sent her to the harem that he kept at Palermo. And there she lived in seclusion, pining for the bright life of Outremer. In 1228, she gave birth to a son, Conrad, and died six days later. She was not yet 17. For two years, Frederick delayed his promised departure on crusade until Pope Honorius, who had always indulged his outrageous behaviour, died in March 1227. The new Pope, Gregory IX, was cast in a grimmer mould. He was a cousin of Innocent III, and like Innocent was a man with a clear legalistic mind and a proud, unyielding faith in the divine authority of the papacy. Stern and austere himself, he detested Frederick as a man. Policy, as well as piety, therefore demanded that Frederick should depart for the East... And Frederick seemed ready to go. A party of English and French crusaders under the bishops of Exeter and Winchester had already sailed for the east throughout the summer of 1227. Frederick mustered a great army in Apulia. An epidemic of malaria enfeebled the army, but several thousand soldiers sailed from Brindisi in August. Frederick joined the army a few days later and embarked on the 8th of September. They had hardly weighed anchor before one of his companions, Louis, fell desperately ill. Their ship put in at Otranto where Louis died and Frederick himself became ill. He left the fleet, which he sent off to Acre under the Patriarch of Jerusalem, and went to recover his health at the Spar of Pozzuoli. An envoy was dispatched to Pope Gregory to explain the unavoidable delay. But Gregory was unconvinced by the tale. The emperor, he thought, was prevaricating again. Therefore, he excommunicated him at once and repeated the sentence solemnly at St Peter's in November. Frederick, after issuing a dignified manifesto to the princes of Europe, denouncing the papal pretensions went on with his preparations for the Crusade. Though the Pope warned him that he could not lawfully set out for the Holy War while he was under the ban of the Church, he nevertheless gathered a small company and embarked from Brindisi on the 28th of June 1228. The delay had, however, altered his status, for the Empress Yolanda was now dead, and Frederick was no longer the Queen's husband, but guardian of their infant son, King Conrad. Therefore, the barons of the Kingdom of Jerusalem would be entitled, if they so wished, to refuse him the title of king. Of these barons, John of Ebelin was the most powerful. He was the nearest male relative in the East, both of the King of Cyprus and of the Empress Queen Yolanda. He was rich, he owned the city of Beirut, and his wife was heiress of Arsouf. His personal qualities won him general respect. His birth, wealth and integrity had made him the accepted leader of the Barons of Outremer, half Levantine French and half Greek. He understood the East and and its peoples, and he was equally well-versed in the history and the law's of the Frankish Kingdom. The Emperor Frederick at once sensed him to be the chief danger to his policy. Frederick understood the East and its peoples from his upbringing in Sicily. His dealings with the Muslims were of a sort that the established barons of Outremer could follow with sympathy. But Frederick's idea of monarchy was not theirs. The King of Jerusalem was by tradition a king bound by a constitution little more than the president of the court and the commander-in-chief. But Frederick saw himself as an autocrat in the Roman and Byzantine manner, the repository of power and law, God's supreme viceroy on earth, with all the advantages that hereditary right could give him thrown in. The emperor of the Romans was not going to be controlled by a few petty crusader barons. When Frederick arrived off Limassol on the 21st of July 1228, he had once summoned John of Ebelin to come with his sons and the young king of Cyprus to meet him. John's friends were warned him of Frederick's reputation for treachery. But John was courageous and correct. He would not refuse an invitation from the ruler of Cyprus. On his arrival with his sons and the king, Frederick received him with honour, calling him uncle and offering him rich gifts. He was told to lay aside the mourning that he wore for his brother Philip and to attend a feast given in his honour. But at the feast, Frederick's soldiers crept in and stood behind each of the guests with their swords drawn. Then Frederick demanded of John that he surrender his fief of Beirut and hand over all the revenues of Cyprus that had come in since the death of King Hugh. John replied that Beirut had been given to him by his sister, Queen Isabella, and he would defend his right to it before the High Court of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. As for the revenues, both Philip and he had had given them, as was right, to the regent Queen Alice. Frederick broke into open threats, but John stood firm. Frederick, who had only three or four thousand troops with him, dared not risk an open fight. He demanded that twenty nobles, including John's two sons, should be left with him as hostages, and that John should come with him to Palestine. In return, John and the Cypriot nobles recognised, as was correct, Frederick as ruler of Cyprus, but not as the king of Jerusalem. With this done, Frederick and his troops sailed on to Acre. Meanwhile, John of Ebelin hurried at once to Beirut to be sure that it could resist an attack from Frederick. He then returned to Acre to defend himself before the High Court, but Frederick did not hasten to take action. News had reached Palestine that the Pope had excommunicated him yet again for setting out for the crusade before he had obtained absolution from his previous excommunication. There was some doubt, therefore, whether oaths of fealty sworn to him held good, and many pious folk, including the Patriarch, refused to cooperate with him. The Templars and the hospitalers would have nothing to do with an excommunicate. He could only rely on his Teutonic knights, whose master Hermann of Salza was his friend. His own army was not large, of the troops that had gone out With him, many had already returned home from impatience or from fear of offending the church. A few more had sailed east with the patriarch a month later, and Frederick had sent out in the spring of 1228 500 knights under his loyal servant, the Marshal Richard Filangeri. Even with the whole army of Outremer, he could not muster an impressive force capable of striking a decisive blow against the Muslims. To add to his disquiet, word came from Italy. that his lieutenant, Duke Reynald of Spoleto, had failed in an attack on the March of Ancona and that the Pope was massing forces to invade his own kingdom. Therefore, Frederick could not afford to embark on a large campaign in the east. His crusade would have to be a crusade of diplomacy. Fortunately for Frederick, the Sultan al-Kamil held similar views. The alliance of the three Ayyubite brothers, al-Kamil al-Muzam of Syria, and al-Ashraf of the Jazeera, had not long survived their triumph over the Fifth Crusade. Al-Mazam had always been jealous of al-Kamil, and now he rightly suspected that al-Kamil and al-Ashraf were planning to divide his lands. To the east of the Ayyubites, The great Khwarezmian empire of Jalal al-Din was reaching its apogee. Jalal al-Din had driven off a Mongol invasion and now ruled from Azerbaijan to the Indus, dominating the caliph at Baghdad. Though the presence of the Mongols kept him from adventuring too far into the west, he was a potential danger to the Ayyubites, and when al-Mazam, despite his brothers, called on him for help and in 1226 recognised his authority, al-Kamil was genuinely frightened. al-Ashraf was on the defensive, enduring a siege in his capital at Aklat. The Mongols at this moment were busy in China, and an appeal to them, were it indeed a wise idea, would go unheeded. So in the autumn of 1226, Al-Kamil had sent one of his most trusted emirs, Fakhr al-Din, to Sicily to ask help from the Emperor Frederick. Frederick was sympathetic but made no promises. He was then still contemplating an active crusade, but to keep the negotiations open, he sent Thomas of Assera, who was already in Palestine together with the Bishop of Palermo, to Cairo with gifts and friendly messages for the Sultan. Al-Kamil suggested, as he had done during the Fifth Crusade that he was ready to restore Jerusalem to the Christians. Unfortunately, it belonged to his brother Al-Mazam, and when the Bishop of Palermo went to Damascus to clinch the arrangement, Almazam angrily replied that he was no pacifist, he still used his sword. Meanwhile, Fakra ad din revisited Sicily, where he became an intimate friend of the Emperor, and received a knighthood from him. Frederick's departure for the East, so eagerly pressed by the Pope was equally urged by the Sultan. But before Frederick had set out the situation was changed. Al-Mazam died on the 11th of November 1227 leaving his dominions to a youth of 21 his son and nazir As the new ruler was weak and inexperienced Al-Kamil at once prepared to invade his territory. He marched into Palestine and captured Jerusalem and Nablus and nazir appealed to his uncle Al-Ashraf who hastened to his rescue, announcing that he'd come to see that the Franks did not take advantage of the situation to annex Palestine. Al Kamil was loudly making the same claim, which sounded plausible, as Frederick was now on his way to the east. Eventually, the two brothers met near Gaza and decided to divide their nephew's lands between them, still protesting that they were acting altruistically in the interests of Islam. and Nazir was encamped at Bison, where Al Ashraf planned to capture him, but the boy heard of the plot and fled to Damascus. His uncle's armies followed him and laid siege to the city about the end of the year 1228. Under these circumstances, Al-Kamil regretted Frederick's coming. He had every prospect of obtaining Palestine permanently for himself, for the Khwarizmians showed no sign of coming to al help. But the presence of a crusading army at Acre meant that he could not concentrate all his forces on the siege of Damascus. Frederick was not entirely to be trusted. He might decide to intervene on Annazir's behalf. When Frederick sent Thomas of Asera and Balian of Sidon to Al-Kamil to announce his arrival. Al-Kamil told Fakhr ad din to visit the emperor once more to open negotiations and keep them open as long as possible until Damascus should fall or Frederick should go home. There followed several months of bargaining in an atmosphere partly of mutual bluff and partly of mutual admiration. Neither emperor nor sultan was fanatically devoted to his religion. Each was interested in the other's way of life. Neither was prepared to go to war if it could be avoided, but each had had for the sake of his prestige with his own people, to drive as hard a bargain as possible. Frederick was pressed for time and his army not large enough for a major campaign, but Al-Kamil was alarmed by any show of force while Damascus was still untaken, and he was ready to make concessions to the Crusaders if it would help him to pursue his greater policy, which was to reunite and dominate the Ayyubite world. But the concessions must not go too far – when Frederick demanded... The retrocession of all Palestine, Fakra al-Din, on al-Kamil's instructions, told him that his master could not afford to offend Muslim opinion to such a degree. Therefore, at the end of November 1228, Frederick tried to hasten matters by a military display. He assembled all the troops that would follow him and marched down the coast to Jaffa, which he proceeded to refortify. At the same moment, an who was not yet closely invested in Damascus, led an army to Nablus to intercept his uncle's supply lines, but Al-Kamil refused to be bluffed. He broke off negotiations saying that Frederick's men had pillaged Muslim villages and only resumed them again when Frederick paid out compensation to the victims. But in the end, it was Frederick who proved to be the better negotiator. When February came, and nazir was still unscathed in Damascus. Frederick had completed the fortifications of Jaffa, and he sent Thomas of Asera and Balian of Sidon once more to Al-Kamil. On the 11th of February, they brought back the Sultan's final terms. Frederick agreed to them, and a week later, on the 18th, he signed a peace treaty with Al-Kamil's representatives. The Grand Master of the Teutonic Order and the Bishops of Exeter and Winchester were witnesses. By this treaty, the Kingdom of Jerusalem was to recover Jerusalem itself and Bethlehem with a correspondent. Or running through Lydda to the sea at Jaffa. The temple area with the Dome of the Rock and the Mosque Al Aqsa was to remain in Muslim hands, and Muslims were to be allowed the right of entry and freedom of worship. Frederick might rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. All prisoners on both sides were to be released. The peace was to last ten years by the Christian calendar and ten years and five months by the Muslim calendar. Thus, without striking a blow, Frederick had won back the holy places for Christendom. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to another person or, of course, to leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll continue the extraordinary story of the Emperor Frederick's crusade.